0: This is The Law School Show, discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Law School Show. Today, I'll be your host. My name is Lewis Waring. I am currently at the University of Manitoba, and I am also from Toronto. So what follows is a conversation I had with Omar Haradai, and we had a chat about the recent Supreme Court decision, R.V. Lee, from 2019. And this is a decision that has big implications for detention, charter rights, as well as the overrepresentation of racial minorities in the justice system. Omar Haradai is a Toronto and Durham region lawyer and legal academic. He holds an LLM in health law from Osgoode Hall Law School, and he is the executive director of the Durham Community Legal Clinic, which focuses on law reform, public legal education, and providing legal services to low-income residents. Omar Haradai is also actively involved in the legal profession and has held various leadership positions in several different advocacy and professional organizations. And in 2011, he was named one of the top 12 social media influencers practicing law in Canada. So I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Omar Haradai on RV Lee, detention and racialization of minority groups in the Canadian legal system. Hello, so I'm here talking with Omar Haradai, uh, who is a lawyer that I've known about as a Torontonian. I mean, I've um, I've seen your name in the papers. I remember uh, connected with Occupy Wall Street. And um, also, I, I I went to Centennial College as well. I think you were, were you a teacher at Centennial for a while?
1: That's true. Yeah. So look at that small world.
0: Yeah, I know. And but beyond that, um, I know you have a reputation as being a very diverse civil litigator involved in health law, and also executive director of the Durham Community Legal Clinic.
1: That's correct. I am. Yes.
0: And still teaching at Ryerson, I think.
1: Still teaching at Ryerson. Yeah, they have a brand new law school, which uh, I'm very excited to support. Uh, There's a whole new batch of keen law students who I am 100% confident are going to transform the legal industry. So very much involved uh, in supporting that.
0: Yeah, that's been really interesting to see a new law school pop up in Toronto. Um, Ryerson, that's where my brother went. And uh, I, I don't know much about um, the starting of this like new school at Ryerson, but I think it's really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, it's obviously the first year and it's the first year during a pandemic. So, you know, that uh, itself is an unusual start, but certainly there's a huge emphasis there on access to justice, on the use of technology, um, on, on doing law differently. And I think I've already seen some of that manifest itself in terms of what they're doing.
0: Yeah. And those are those are just really super important issues. I know, um, like, for instance, in criminal law, I've come across a lot of these sort of just digital technology related issues that we're just grappling with now um, in the courts. So I, I contacted you because I, I read some of your work that you had uh, been talking about carding and talking about the decision R.V. Lee, which is, I guess, at this point, a few years old, but uh I think 2019 decision and um this is a decision that I I found really interesting myself and I think it's it's a really important case going forward um and but I just want to start at very very broad uh level and this is a case about you know section 9 of the charter and I'm just wondering what, what does What is the, the point of Section 9 of the Charter? What does it guarantee us?
1: So it's a good place to start. Section 9 basically says that Canadians have a right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. Now, imprisoned seems pretty uh, commonsensical, right? I mean, you're going to know if you're in prison, but what does it mean to be detained? And I think that's where it gets uh, a little bit more complicated because there is a common law power to detain someone for a reasonable amount of time uh, by law enforcement. Uh, And so they are allowed to do that within a brief period of time. But if that continues and goes beyond a brief uh, investigative detention, then it potentially turns into arrest. And so uh, the Lee case is fascinating because it explores section nine, it's true, especially at the Supreme Court of Canada level, but also has this intersection with section eight which uh, was explored at the court of appeal level, but really didn't uh, play a very prominent role in the court's decision uh, at the Supreme level.
0: Yeah, very, very true. And um, this is something I, I, I know like when people hear like when uh, sort of uh, you know, people who haven't gone to law school hear about the word detention, they often have a hard time parsing the difference between detention and arrest, which you alluded to a little bit. And um so what, what is, I know you mentioned a little bit, a little bit fleshing out, what's the difference between when someone is detained and when someone is arrested?
1: Well, the common law explains that a, det- a detention can also include a psychological detention. So uh, a police officer who is perhaps blocking the way or is asking you questions. And so at that point in time, there isn't any power that's being exerted under the criminal code, which would be a, an arrest. Uh, there's no attempt by the officer to transport you to another location or, uh, you know, put you in jail or anything like that. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not the more, I guess, severe, uh, police powers, but as I mentioned, a detention quite often can and will turn into arrest in many circumstances.
0: Yes. This, this idea of psychological detention is something that I, as soon as I learned a little bit about it, I just found it really interesting. And, um, I think everybody, you know, more or less is familiar with the idea of police maybe coming up to you and putting a pair of handcuffs on you and then you're detained. What's the difference between something like psychological detention when there's really no, um, no assertion that you violated the law and nobody really putting handcuffs on you necessarily?
1: So the main case here is, uh, is, a, is an older case now. It's, a, it's Grant, a very famous criminal law case, uh, which basically explained that a psychological detention is when there's a legal requirement to comply with something, a direction or a demand, typically by a person in a position of authority. And a reasonable person looking at that conduct would conclude that the person who is being told to do something has really no choice but to comply with that direction. Uh, So you're not being physically held down, you're not being physically detained, but you know you have a cop who's standing there, let's say, crossing their arms and looking at you sternly and saying, you must do this. Uh, And there's an implied assertion in that, as in, if I don't do this, what's going to happen? And so there is uh, a recognition in law that psychological detention is also a form of detention, and it's a form of detention which could be breached under Section 9 of the Charter.
0: Yeah, it's just a very interesting idea, and I think it makes a lot of sense as well. I remember a little bit from the Grant case. um, I I actually used to live right in that area, too. It happened, I think, Greenwood and Danforth. And um, I know in that area, you know, it's sort of a... At the time, it was a high-crime area, and there was a lot of police presence there. And I know that... um, you know the officers who interacted with with Grant. It was um, it was really like they something like they they saw him and suspected that he might have some sort of contraband on him, some sort of drugs on him. Started talking to him and started asking him questions, and eventually, sort of, and these officers joined and made this sort of tactical formation, and it was all of these factors that came together to result in what they call a psychological detention.
1: Yeah. And so I think Grant is a great case uh, for for laying the groundwork here, because you're right. I mean, the the, the Grant test sort of laid out the fact that we look at these things holistically. So we look at what are all of the circumstances that are involved here? And uh, is there a general inquiry being made or is someone being singled out for a focused investigation? What type of language are the cops using? Is there any use of physical contact? Uh, Is there um, any other circumstances, including the age, the physical stature, and the level of sophistication of the uh, individual involved? And in fact, Grant even referenced, even at that early stage, the possibility of a minority status also being a possibility of uh, an element in the psychological detention, something which manifested more clearly in Lee.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, that's it's an interesting thing about Grant because um, even though Lee has, uh, as we'll talk about, has become this case that stands for the racialization of um, certain individuals, this was something that was pointed out in Grant as well and um, recognized. But and and I'm not sure. But I guess my my feeling was maybe. It didn't really bear fruit in Grant in the sense that it didn't um, didn't exclude any evidence. It didn't really get did get Grant anything at the time.
1: Well, no, it was almost in passing. So it's paragraph forty four where they they list a number of characteristics or circumstances. Uh, which include things like age, physical stature, minority status, and level sophistication. But that minority status aspect wasn't really a, a significant aspect of Grant in of itself in the decision.
0: So that, I think that's, that's obviously one of the reasons why Lee became such an interesting case, because it, it really picked up on that, that almost remark made in passing um, in Grant, and turned it into a really relevant part of asking the question whether somebody has been detained, like the perceptions of a person who is a racialized minority.
1: Yeah, and I can jump in there again, like, you know, it's not like Grant ignored it entirely. So, you know, you, you can dig down a little bit into the, the decision and where they're looking at, uh, you know, what they call a claimant centered approach uh, and a, an objective uh, assessment of the facts between law enforcement and members of the public And they do talk about psychological detention in the context and the perspective. And with Grant, he's he's an individual who's black. Um, And whether or not a reasonable person in his position, I think that's the, the important words there, would feel free to choose to walk away from those police officers and that ethnicity being part of that decision. So it was flagged there and they did. Signal as well that there is an overrepresentation of indigenous and other visible minorities in the context of police patrols, but really, I, I think that we saw this come home and come together in uh, the Lee decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, the so when we look at moving to the Lee decision, when we look at a decision like Lee compared to Grant, um, what do you what was it about the Lee decision that? that made the analysis different from Grant? Considering they both they both acknowledge this racialization, um, what made Lee distinct from Grant? Well, in
1: part, I think it's the passage of time. So Grant, which I think was what, 2009? And then you had a decade later, you had this decision in Lee. Uh, by the time Lee rolls around, uh, we're having more of a recognition in the legal community that the racial component Um, in in the relationships between, let's say, law enforcement and various communities is uh, a very significant component. So there's no uh, surprise in my mind, for example, that the Supreme Court of Canada made reference to the Tullock Report. So the Tullock Report, which um, had looked at issues like carding, which happened in between Grant and Lee, uh, and there had been a lot of controversy around carding, the use of carding, and uh, the Tulloch report providing a number of recommendations. Uh, and, and I can even go further. A government, a new government in Ontario, which didn't adopt those recommendations found in the Tulloch report. Um, I, I think all of that, you know, it's uh, Justice Tulloch is, is a member of the Court of Appeal. He's a, you know, and it's not that his report has any um, binding impact, of course, on the Supreme Court of Canada. But the fact that he spent such an enormous amount of time delving into these issues uh, following Grant, I really do think that the court in Lee felt that this was something that should have been given consideration. And so they referred to it and they quote his his recommendations explicitly in their decision.
0: Yeah, so interesting. Um, Could you maybe just for people, I, I know when I first started learning about carding, I was not entirely clear on what is carding just in general, maybe even in comparison to like a street check, what is carding in specific?
1: So it's also known as uh, what is called a community contacts policy. And so, um, you know, good intentions and good intentions often get us into not so good places. But uh, the rationale here is that law enforcement need to better understand the communities in which they're operating in. And one of the ways in which you can do that is by keeping a record of all of the individuals who you have interaction with. And so that means anybody who you're stopping or questioning, or they come to you with some information, um, you know, you're just going to keep a log of that so that you have a better social understanding of the communities that you're policing. Now, the problem with this, I mean, you know, again, if you just explain it in that way, It sounds uh, very, you know, uh, innocuous, but the reality, as we know, when we have programs like this, um, especially when you're dealing with the diverse communities in Toronto, is that the interactions that law enforcement had, by and large, were primarily with Black uh, and Indigenous and other racialized populations in Toronto. There was a disproportionate amount Of that type of interaction and so there's a lot of questions as to why that might be i mean are you sending police officers into racialized neighborhoods or are you sending police officers into uh, neighborhoods where there's a higher amount of crime and therefore uh, some of those neighborhoods have racialized populations so it's just a coincidence but the the end result of all of this was that we heard all across toronto especially from young black men and young racialized men that they felt harassed by uh, the Toronto Police Services. And so this particular case of Lee emerges from a neighbourhood called Alexandra Park, which is actually not too far from where I live. So there you go. Um, and, and involved a, a number of young men who were in a backyard. And I think that the racial composition here is important. It's worth noting that there were... Uh, uh, a group of men who were black and Asian. And I say that because if you know anything about Alexander Park, which, uh, you know, the police involved did, of course, there are two main gangs that are situated there, uh, the, the, the Project Originals and the Asian Assassins, uh, the former being a primarily black gang and the latter being a primarily Asian gang. And the two are known to cooperate and work with each other. So when you have a, a bunch of young men who uh, fit some of those demographics, it also then fits into some of the preconceived uh, perceptions or stereotypes that law enforcement may have as to individuals who may be engaged in criminal activity.
0: That's very interesting. I also I also used to live right beside Alexander Park and that, that was one of the reasons I got really interested in, in Lee as well, is just knowing that neighborhood and knowing that, that co-op uh, sort of complex there. And um, it just very interesting um, decision that um, you know I, this can you t- t- can you talk a little bit about this um, when you say that the Toronto Police Service was sort of addressing these gang problems, that there was two different gangs, um, I understand that that, that TPS really um, they even had a sort of project, Tavis, which was all about um, sort of responding to what was really a spike in sort of gun crime and gang violence in Toronto at the time that sort of related to why they were in Alexander Park that day?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, well, we'll get to that in a second, but the, the Tavis program was the Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy. So that's what it stands for. And uh, it, it involved what we call a rapid response team uh, that had 18 officers who would be able to be able to take down street gangs once that activity was identified. And so that was a big part of the police activity in uh, Toronto generally, and including in Alexander Park. But I'm not sure that in the particular case that we're looking at in Lee, that there were um, Tavis officers that were involved. My understanding was that there were police officers that were called under the suspicion of an entirely different individual being in the premises. And then when they arrived, the uh, security people that were there basically said, well, uh, so-and-so is not there, but you know what? There's something going on down over there. Maybe you want to go check it out. And so they did. They went and checked it out. And, and I think that's when you start to get some of these unusual facts uh, related to Alexander Park, in that it's a, it's a co-op, first of all. So, you know, it's co-owned by all the residents there. Uh, obviously, all the residents there have an interest in maintaining safety in their, in their community. And so as part of that interest, they had an agreement with TPS to enforce anti-trespassing laws, okay? So um, it's not like the police were unwelcome there generally. But in this particular case, what they did was they walked down the alley, so the back end of the house, and in this particular house, uh, there was a fence that was basically dilapidated and broken. And so because it was broken, they could not only just look into the backyard and see these young men sort of hanging out there, but they were also able to walk right in. Uh, there was some uh, conflicting testimony uh, at trial, and, and some of that testimony suggested that there was a pillow there or a couch there that was uh, situated in a way to sort of block that entrance, uh, indicating that there was a expectation of privacy uh, more related to the Section 8 interest there. Um, but regardless, the reality here was that you would never have police officers walking down an alleyway in a more affluent neighborhood and just wandering into a backyard. And I think that's where the unique aspects of these facts start to emerge.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. this um, I mean, I, I remember in the decision that they really went into this idea of private property rights, really, and the um, the way that police had just walked into somebody's private property? And what, what can you talk a little bit more about what kind of effect this idea that police had just waltzed into somebody's um, property had on the detention?
1: Yeah, so there's two aspects of the Section 8 and the Section 9. And I think the property aspect, uh, far more prominent uh, aspect of that in the Section 8 rights here. And so the Court of Appeal which didn't side uh, with the accused in this case, um, didn't really, I would say, give enough weight to the fact that the manner in which the police officers sort of wandered into this uh, backyard uh, really did perhaps uh, engage in an unreasonable search or seizure. The Supreme Court of Canada didn't even go there. They, they actually found a convenient way to exclude the evidence under 24-2 by focusing on the Section 9 element. So they sort of sidestep the whole Section 8 issue, uh, which I think is still a very, very important and fascinating issue, as in why do people in more affluent neighborhoods, if you will, have more robust Section 8 uh, interests than people who live in a community housing or dilapidated neighborhoods? I mean, I think that's a, an, an unanswered question that emerges uh, from Lee. Um, but the court also had some difficulty, I would say, in finding a way to uh, exclude the evidence under that alone. So that's why they focused on Section 9. And so in Section 9, when you're looking at this uh, aspect, which is an unreasonable uh, or arbitrary detention, so uh, police officers coming in and, as we've discussed, psychologically detaining you. when the police officers themselves are sort of blocking the entrance in a fence, okay? And the way it's described, all of this went down in less than a minute. Um, And they're telling you do this and do that, take off your bag, do this, do that. You know, the the young men there in that particular context, first of all, are startled. You have these cops coming out, showing up from nowhere. Uh, They weren't engaging in any criminal activity at that point in time. Uh, They were actually lawfully there because one of the young men uh, actually lived there. And so they were, they were very much taken by surprise, but the surprise itself isn't really where you get an arbitrary detention. It's more that perception, that, that objective, if you will, or subjective as, the, as I think ultimately the Supreme Court of Canada sort of modified the test here. Um, perception by the, by the accused and by the young men there um, that they didn't have any other choice but to comply with the police officers. And that's when you start to get the section nine breach.
0: Yeah, very, very interesting um, how this racialization really played an active part in um, the really just the perception of somebody who's standing in um, Lee's shoes, seeing police come out of nowhere and just sort of walk right into uh, what is really just a private property and um, start ordering everybody around. Um, One, I, I, I also did pick up on this. Um, I know, as you were saying, they didn't really dive into the Section 8 property rights in Lee. And I, I found that a little bit interesting because they, I noticed that they, they did mention economic marginalization at, in a few points. And it's something I've wondered about in the decision of Lee. Does Lee create a sort of precedent for recognizing that the way someone perceives an interaction may be affected by their economic status or whether they're in a low-income neighborhood or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think it can and it should. I mean, this is what we're we're moving towards uh, when we get to a more robust uh, uh, understanding of the law when it comes to implementing intersectionality. And so the socioeconomic aspects and that intersection with uh, race is uh, very important and fascinating. The accused in this case was of Asian background, as I mentioned. Uh, But you can look at other neighborhoods in Toronto and other Asian populations in Toronto where that same perspective wouldn't manifest itself in the same way. So it's not just about race. It's about race in particular geographic locations with certain socioeconomic aspects, as you've described, but also the specific experiences of the accused where he described a history of being harassed by the police previously in his life. And so he was like, okay, here we go again. I guess I just have to go along with what they're telling me to do.
0: I, I, I totally agree with you. That's, that's how I, uh, I started to see this as well, that all of these factors sort of play together. When you have someone who's living in Alexander Park, um, which you know at the, at the time there was a lot, of, um, a lot of crime or a perception of a lot of crime in that area, and you are a racialized person who is really living in living in a neighborhood that's one of the neighborhoods that's getting carded all the time, um, it's when you're sort of in this low-income, high-crime neighborhood as a racialized person that everything sort of comes together to create this perception of a reasonable person in that circumstance.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's worth noting the Supreme Court of Canada also – Uh, went further. I mean, they they did cite the grant, uh, sorry, the uh, Tulloch report. But they also said, look, we've had report after report after report, and nothing really has changed after all these years and all these reports. And so uh, they said, look, it's not just an inconvenience to be over policed and to constantly have these interactions with law enforcement. Uh, It's not just an inconvenience. It actually has a toll, not just on your uh, mental health, but your physical health as well. That's a that's a pretty, pretty powerful statement. It's one that I think most uh, racialized populations in Toronto, especially in certain neighborhoods, could relate to. Um, It it transforms your perspective of law enforcement. It's no longer a matter of law enforcement being there to keep your community safe. It's about law enforcement using a heavy hand to harass you, especially if you're not engaging in criminal activity. And, And I like to emphasize this because uh, this is part of what we come to when it comes to the 24-2 analysis, right? It's not just a matter of, we have this weird thing in, in Canadian constitutional law. It's not like uh, the, uh, the American constitution where, where they have the fruit of the forbidden tree. So, you know, you can violate someone's charter rights <laughs> and you say, well, we're not going to necessarily exclude that, even though it broke the constitution. We still have to see if it brings the justice system into disrepute. So, you know, there's still that secondary part of the test that's necessary under our charter. And what makes Lee interesting, I think this is where they really, really switch it around here, because they did find firearms here. They found some illicit drugs and stuff like that. And in any other circumstance, you know, someone would look at this and say, uh, in other cases, I should say previously, that, um, you know, there's a societal interest in in having a case tried on the merits. And the merits include the fact that some of these illicit uh, and illegal materials were on the person of the accused. But Lee is taking it a little bit further. They're saying, well, we need to look at the the broader context here. We need to actually send a message, if you will, to law enforcement. And we'll talk about that in a sec, what the effect has been on TPS. Um, and and they, they take it a little bit further and they say that <clears throat> the, the effect of this type of approach to policing is going to itself bring the justice system into disrepute. And, and that is a fascinating uh, approach towards these issues, because that's what something that, that many of us living in Toronto have been saying is that, you know, the the, the justice system being into disrepute isn't just for those who are in power. It isn't just for those who are affluent. It's also for the people in these communities who are being policed. And I think that there's a very important point here, which isn't made by the court, but one that I, I make frequently, which is uh, young men... Or young individuals purely. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be men, it just happens to be disproportionately men. So young people in many of these impoverished neighborhoods don't grow up to say, I want to grow up to be a criminal, like that's my career goal, that's my life goal. It has nothing to do with that at all. It has to do with, you know, first of all, economic uh, desperation, <clears throat> so lack of uh, viable economic opportunities, uh, lack of ability, perhaps, to to go and pursue post secondary education, uh, more immediate financial pressures related to uh, situations in the home. So, so that's a very very important component, first of all. But the second part of it, which is I think uh, spoken to by this decision in Lee, is a lack of confidence in the system as a whole. And what I mean by this is, if you believe that you live in a society where society is structured against you, that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, that the cards are stacked against you, the deck is stacked against you, you're not going to be able to advance in the same way as someone else in that same society, then that's when we start to see people choosing to engage in antisocial behavior. And antisocial behavior is a a broader term that we include uh, things like criminality. So there's a, a bigger picture here, which I think the court is trying to address here, which is we have to change the relationships between law enforcement and the various populations in Toronto, and in particular, the racialized populations in Toronto.
0: Yeah, that's that's so true. I, I do think that that also that that is what Lee did that I think Grant didn't necessarily do, although Grant also recognized um, this uh, phenomena of racialization, Lee really sort of um, I don't know how to say it better than putting their money where their mouth is and excluding this evidence and really saying that this is not the way we're going to police the nation anymore. We're going to change. It's sort of a cultural change that the Supreme Court endorsed, I suppose, in Lee.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly it. Because, I mean, the whole notion of 24-2 is that you also don't want to have law enforcement Uh, expending resources and energy and, you know, pushing these matters even through the court system when it's already backlogged, uh, just to have the evidence thrown out. And so it operates as a disincentive. So I can tell you what happened on the immediate aftermath of Lee is uh, city council got a briefing, okay, because they're the ones who hire, obviously, the police police services uh, and provide the funding for that. Uh, There was an internal briefing within TPS. So they immediately had, you know, a, a briefing about what does this mean? and how do we do things better in the future so that we don't have our evidence excluded under 24-2, okay? So the, the power and the importance of the court making statements and taking positions like this cannot be underemphasized. Uh, it had enormous, enormous repercussions that still continue with us till this day. So, you know, we're not that far away from Lee. It's only just been a couple of years. And uh, it was, I think, just last week where uh, city council, passed a vote indicating that they were going to choose to use more social types of services for 911 calls that were not emergent and not of a criminal nature so that they could try to de-escalate. I, I think in large measure, yes, this is part of the broader Black Lives Matter movement that we've seen over the past year, um, the, the misnamed, if you will, defund the police movement that we see happening all across North America, but it also is very much an effect and an aftermath of the decision in Lee, which signaled very, very clearly that there has to be a different way to uh, engage in law enforcement among diverse and minority communities in Toronto.
0: Yeah, it's it's true. You know, there's there's so many things that have happened since you know, I uh, grant 2009. It's been um, what is it, eleven years since then, and I'm you know, as you had said earlier that you know, since Grant, you know. A decade had passed, and just the way that we look at the world has changed. And it's really interesting to see these changes um, sort of bear fruit in the legal system um, with these sort of dramatic moves by the Supreme Court and the, the responses from the city of Toronto. Do you have any um, any sort of ideas on the way we could continue to see these trends develop in the future?
1: Well, I think part of it we're seeing already happening, where uh, there's a very, very strong push and a very strong call to diversify uh, law enforcement itself. And so having different individuals um, of different backgrounds on uh, the police force, I, th- I think that makes a huge difference. Uh, but to my previous point, I don't think it's enough, and, and I'm not much of a uh, you know people counter or, or a strictly quantitative approach towards diversity. I don't think those approaches uh, are very successful. Um, because, as I mentioned before, you can have racialized populations from entirely different neighborhoods and entirely different experiences, and they're not going to have the same type of insights and perspectives. So, I think that's part of it. Part of it is recruiting different types of people for police force. Uh, the, the other aspect of that, though, it doesn't it doesn't end with that. Of course, uh, is is to change and transform the approach to policing in terms of the relationship with those communities, as in, you know, going walking up and down and stopping everybody you talk to, uh, and then keeping notes, you know, the carding that you alluded to before, and maybe keeping that in a database, okay, that is also not an effective way of building community relations. I think that's what it comes down to. So even the people who live in Alexander Park, as I said before, want to have safe communities. So, you know, Tavis that you brought up, emerged out of concerns out of, you know, increasing shootings in Toronto, and uh, broad societal interest in clamping down on uh, anti-gang uh, activity. Uh, so it's not like law enforcement doesn't have a valid goal or a valid objective in terms of those types of uh, um, uh, uh, activities. It's more about them having a different approach As to how they tackle those issues. And I think another aspect to this that um, wasn't actually addressed in this decision, but you know it's been talked about for years, is the fact that you have law enforcement uh, often not living in the same communities that the police. So in Toronto, the example of Toronto, many members of the Toronto Police Services live in the suburbs quite often as far away (laughs) from Toronto as they can manage Uh, By way of a commute, you know, a reasonable commute. And and so they're very, very far removed from the issues. And I think, you know, not just symbolically, but psychologically, it makes a difference. If you are policing the same communities, or the same neighborhoods or the same city that you live in, you take a different approach towards it. Uh, Whereas if you're physically removed, and I think that's the reality of, of Toronto or the GTA, I should say, the further you go out, the less diverse it gets. Right. And so you are deliberately choosing then to live in non-diverse communities, to live in communities that have a different socioeconomics. And so, you know, your kids are going to different schools um, than the people, the the type of people or the the people that you want to want to work with in terms of policing. And so I think, you know, when we talk about competencies Competencies isn't just doing, oh, I did a workshop on, you know, different ethno-lingual communities in Toronto, and therefore I'm competent to work in this area. Competencies are far more complex than that and far deeper than that, and really, really, really are reinforced by life experiences. And so I think that's more what we're seeing or what I would like to see uh, of an understanding of what policing is about, is that policing is not just about uh, being imposed on the community. It's for the benefit of the community by people who are actually living in that same community.
0: Yeah, such an important point. I, I I don't want to go too far afield, but when you're talking about you know the reality that police officers are essentially you know living uh, kilometers and kilometers away from the people that they are in fact policing, it it seems such a common um, thing to happen. It I almost it almost reminds me of the G twenty. Uh, protests when you had police sort of coming in from all over Canada and uh, just for the express purpose that they sort of weren't from the same place of the people they were going to be policing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, there's a psychological component to that, too. Right. So, um, you know, and it happens even in, in warfare. It happens in, in you know, all types of other. And I, and I don't like to make police and make analogy between them and paramilitary uh, examples. But unfortunately, it happens. Uh, but generally, when you're when you let's say, other, another population, you other, another community, it's a lot easier to uh, engage in excess physical force. That's just a reality. And so um, if you don't have that emotional and psychological connection to the same people that you're policing with, uh, that's when I think more of those mistakes, if you will, happen. And so I think there's a very, very strong public policy rationale for uh, supporting those types of approaches towards policing, where policing is very much grounded in the community.
0: Great. Yeah, very, very, uh, very true. And um, I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap up. This is um, when we start talking about Lee, it just really goes in all these different directions and very, very important topics, especially in the context of these other social movements that are going on in the past few years, uh, Black Lives Matter. And as you said, maybe the um, like misnamed defund the police these um, It's just a very interesting time in, in Canadian uh, politics, including Canadian policing. Um, I just want to thank you for taking some time to speak about RV Lee, speak about carding, and uh, speaking about really just policing in Toronto in general.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I, I, I live within a, st- uh, a, a stone's throw from 52 Division. So literally every single day I do see officers uh, entering and leaving 52 Division. Um, and, and I try to have a good relationship with them. So some of them, you know, they do say hi to me and stuff like that. Uh, so it's not like we're, uh, and as a point that I've made repeatedly in this context, it's not like these um, critiques or this type of analysis is a way of, of uh, denigrating law enforcement. I think the court in Lee also made that point. It's uh, simply an interest in ensuring that we get the best out of our police services and encouraging them to do better than they have done in the past. And I think that is a goal and objective that everybody can sign on to. So thanks again for having me, Lewis.
0: Thank you, thank you. So this has uh, been Omar Haridai and thank you for tuning in and have a good night. Just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here. Next time
1: on The Law School Show.